This is I Choose Life, news and views sponsored by Indiana Right to Life and Right to Life of Northeast Indiana, committed to defending innocent human life for all people of all ages. I Choose Life, news and views is produced by Bot Radio Network in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome to I Choose Life, news and views. As always, I'm so glad to have you tuning in. This is Abigail Lorenzen with Right to Life of Northeast Indiana hosting the program today. I have with me, joining us by the phone, Dr. Paul Byrne, who is quite renowned in the field of neonatology in the U.S., which for those of you who don't know, neonatology is the care of just newly born infants um, and a lot of times includes infants who are born prematurely, so before that 40-week or 38-week point. So Dr. Byrne, neonatologist and a clinical professor of pediatrics, He's a past president of the Catholic Medical Association, for those of you who are familiar with that. If you're not familiar with the Catholic Medical Association, I would highly suggest you look them up. They include a database of our Catholic physicians in your area, and so you can see who um, those faithful doctors are, and that often helps with moral issues when you're looking for care. He's produced films on brain death and related topics, so spanning the kind of the entire realm of medical care from neonatology at the very point of birth all the way to the end of life, and oftentimes those two come too close together. Um, So brain death is something that he deals with a lot, as well as organ donation. Dr. Byrne has presented testimony on life and death issues in nine state legislatures. He opposed Dr. Jack Kevorkian on Crossfire and has appeared on Good Morning America and in the BBC documentary, Are the Donors Really Dead?, as well as public television in Japan. He's the author of many articles in both medical and law journals and the lay press as well. And as I mentioned, strong in the field of neonatology, pioneering things such as a blood pressure finger monitor for preemie babies so that we can track better how they're doing. He also has 12 children. Um, His wife, Shirley, passed some time ago, but those children are carrying on their own families. And that's a wonderful thing to see as well. So thanks so much, Dr. Byrne, for joining us. Thank you, Abigail, for inviting me to be on this program with you. Is there anything else you want to add to your bio for our listeners? Well, one of the things I, that is very important is that we talk about neonatology now, but that word was not there when uh, neonatology began. What was occurring is that many babies died. In fact, is I reviewed the st- statistics at two hospitals and every baby less than 1,500 grams, that's three pounds and four ounces, that had trouble breathing, died. Oh. It was 100% mortality. So that's why we started. And when we began, we had no treatments. And uh, the only thing we would do is maybe give them some sugar and some water, uh, uh, some electrolyte in the vein, and uh, mostly watch and say, what can we do? And eventually, uh, a way to breathe for babies uh, uh, came about. And that way for breathing for babies includes the, uh, the ventilator. The ventilator for the infant had to be uh, very sensitive, very precise. And the ventilator that is used for everyone was originally invented for the infant. There were a number of us doctors at that time that said 
there ought to be something that we can do. There are a number of um, patients that doctors give up on, if you want to call it that. We didn't give up on these babies. We kept saying, what can we do? And we, we kept working until we found a way to treat them. And it's so exciting now because many of the things that you see in an intensive care unit, in fact, the matter is practically all of them, except perhaps a warming device, which uh, uh, sometimes is called an incubator, uh, uh, but that's all we had in the beginning. And now we have all the other things and much of medicine benefited from that. What I would say is that we see it in terms of some diseases like cancer, like diabetes, that that people keep trying to find new and uh, better ways to diagnose and to treat. And when when we get into uh, the other subject that you mentioned and what I do uh, ha- has to do with the determination of death, so how does a neonatologist get into that? <laughs> well... We had a, a baby, Joseph, in 1975, who was on the ventilator, and he wouldn't move, and he wouldn't breathe. And so a brainwave test was done, and he had no brainwaves. They were flat. And what's written on his chart is consistent with cerebral death. In about 48 hours, the test was repeated. And it was still unchanged from the previous one, still consistent with cerebral death. And it was suggested to stop treating him. I said, well, I don't do that. I treat babies, some live, some die, uh, but I just treat them. I continued to treat Joseph. Joseph did get off the ventilator, and Joseph did go to school and did get good grades. He ran track. He played baseball. He's married and has three children. Because of Joseph, I began to look into the issue of brain death. It took about two years of my study until I understood the language of brain death and what was being written about it. Brain death is not true death. Hmm. Everyone who is called brain death has a beating heart and circulation. Uh, they all have respiration, that, uh, even though they're on a ventilator, but they still have respiration. And so they invented that to call it brain death, which is really brainwashing. When I first began to investigate this, I looked into what was in the literature, and there was that first article, and it had no basic science studies. In fact, it had only one reference, and that reference was to Pope Pius XII. And what they quoted from Pope Pius XII was really a misquote. Pope Pius XII said that we are to presume that human life continues as long as vital functions are present, even when supported by artificial means. And they uh, didn't quote that part of it gives a reference, really a religious reference, and only one, and no medical references. Isn't well, that, that was interesting? Very yeah. suspicious for me and of concern. And then, really, uh, the, it took about three years till the next article was uh, published, the next significant article. And what 
that article said was that the doctor does not have to look for brainwaves in the determination of death. They can just skip that. Hmm. And a lot of people think that brain death means flat brainwaves when, in fact, many times the EEG is not even done. So anyway, it was like that. It, in the uh, beginning, it, uh, I did publish an article in 1977. In 1979, we have an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, we have another article in the Gonzaga Law Review uh, in 1984. What happened in 1968 was that medicine changed. The practice of medicine changed. The concepts of death changed. Before 1968, we were uh, trained not to declare somebody dead unless we were to not observe any kind of movement, no kind of reflex, no heartbeat, and no breathing. And then we were turned, uh, also trained to uh, wait a bit just to be sure. So what happened in 68 is they said you could call somebody dead, somebody who's on a, a ventilator and not responding, but their heart is beating and they have circulation and respiration. Respiration means oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. That's different from ventilation. The only thing the ventilator does for a patient is that it moves the air in. It doesn't move the air out. Interesting. It's only the living person on the ventilator that moves the air out. There's no way to ventilate a corpse. You yeah. can try, but it won't work because all you do is push air in. So a ventilator so all- is very similar to a feeding tube in that idea, where a feeding tube puts food in, but it's up to the living person's body to take that food and digest it and work it into the cells and you know pass it through the waste system. It's only an input of what the body needs in order to survive. Correct. And the ventilator and the feeding tube are examples that support basic necessities for for life. And so your analogy with the feeding tube is very good because we have to have water, we have to have nutrition. Without water, everyone is dead in one to two weeks. Terry Schiavo was an example of that, but they took away her food and water. Uh, She was dead in about 13 days. And you and I, who are active, it would probably come quicker if we didn't have water. Right. Without food, everyone is dead in about two months. Uh, without oxygen, everyone is dead in a matter of minutes. So, But those are basic necessities for life. And what they did with brain death is they have tried to put the life in the brain. Mm-hmm. Not only in the brain, but in the functioning brain. And not only in the functioning brain, but and by functioning means it's actually functioning now. Not in the function of the brain, but in the functioning of the brain. And there's uh, a difference between functioning and function and functions. So my automobile is out there, but it's not doing anything. There's no functioning there. Yet the function of the automobile is there. And there are multiple functions. And that was one of the things that I had to learn when I first started to study brain death. 
because it depends on how you start with these things. If you start with the life and then work your way to the death is one approach to it. If you start with the death and work back, you, you can see that when someone is dead, that they have lost the function of their brain, they've lost the functions of, of their brain, and they've lost the functioning. But if you go the other way and observe the absence of functioning, and that's what's observed in, in the declaration and determination of brain death, they observe the absence of functioning, and then they then go further and say the function is gone, and then they go further and say the functions are gone, and then with the observation of functioning, they conclude death, when in fact that's not sound reasoning. See, ordinarily, when we think, when we talk, we are not trained to be so precise about things. We're trained, you and I, uh, to talk on the telephone. And we talk in an ordinary way, yet you and I know we have to be a bit more precise when we talk so that more people hear us on the radio. We know that, and we try to discipline ourselves and discipline our, our minds to do that. Yet an ordinary thought process is you don't do that. So when, when people hear brain death, they think, yeah, that's not what it is at all. Brain death has many different sets of criteria uh, to make the declaration of brain death. And there are more since then. And incidentally, there's a movement to make what the Academy of Neurology says uh, are the criteria to make them be the same in every state and not only that, the same in every country. And part of why they do that is because those of us who uh, support life and protect life, we do things to help people to know that when they do the procedure of the apnea test, which is part of the declaration of, of brain death, no matter which set of criteria it is, we help people understand that what they do is they take them off the ventilator for 10 minutes. Oh. And their carbon dioxide builds up. They suffocate them for 10 minutes. And, and it's part of the declaration of brain death. And what they want to make it is so they can do this test without any communication to the relatives, without any permission from the relatives. There's a movement to change the criteria so they can do those things. Yikes. Nevada, the state of Nevada already has that put into the law. And uh, the state of Nevada also says that if someone speaks up and said they uh, indicate they don't believe that someone is dead when the doctors are saying they're brain dead, then every expense that there is medically and legally may be incurred by the person who's bringing up the objection. And that's put into the law in Nevada. And they're trying to get these things put into the law for all of us. So these issues are very important that your listening audience learn about these things. They they have to learn that what they call brain death means someone with a beating heart, circulation, and respiration. 
yes, on a ventilator, but those things are there. So they have to know that it's not tests like we're ordinarily used to in medicine. We're used to blood being drawn and then the tests being done on them. Right. We're used to getting a, a CAT scan or ultrasound and observations are made. That's not what the apnea test is. The apnea test is taking away a treatment and then seeing what happens. And when the carbon dioxide goes up, that makes her acidosis. And Mm -hmm. many people know that acidosis is bad. Right. Well, increasing carbon dioxide and acidosis makes the brain swell worse. It's already swelling. It's worse. If it's not swollen, it makes it be there. If they're a relative or themselves are unconscious and on a ventilator, they have to know to instruct no to the apnea test, no to that, and they do it very early. There are other things that I pay attention to that what one of the things that happens when the brain is swollen and doesn't function, it stops making thyroid-stimulating hormone. And so within uh, just a few hours, uh, at the very most, they're deficient in thyroid. To help them to live, you have to get thyroid medication into them. And these are things that everybody can't learn quickly, but everyone needs to know that when someone is called brain dead, they have a beating heart circulation or respiration. Now, how do we get involved in this thing? We go to get a driver's license. And when you get a driver's license, they ask you, do you wish to be an organ donor? People say yes or say no to that, and they have little or no information about what that means. They are thinking of brain death, but in fact, every organ donor, every person that has organs harvested from them, they have beating heart and circulation. They have to have. And because without circulation, very quickly, the organs are so damaged right. that they aren't suitable for transplantation. So that every heart that's transplanted has a beating heart and circulation when they make the incision in the donor to take the heart out. They they change these uh, procedures and do things like cooling and other things uh, ahead of time and uh, cooling of the organs to preserve them. That's why what we see the photographs of them transporting organs. They're in the um, commonly known uh, igloo coolers because they're keeping the organ cool, which slows down the metabolism, but they still have to have the life in that organ. And incidentally, when a heart is transplanted, and we a few minutes ago said that the identity of the person is in the DNA and that's in every cell of, of the body, including every heart cell, and it's unique for each one of us and it's specific for each one of us, when that heart is transplanted into someone else, that heart has to start to beat in someone else, but it always has the DNA of the one who the heart was taken from. That's why they have to give uh, the anti-rejection drugs. Is there a way to be an organ donor that is 
in line with the Christian ethics about human life. So you were talking about how really it's more organ harvesting that's being done because it's based on a diagnosis of brain death, which is really just a coma. Is there a way to be an organ donor and do it ethically? Well, first of all, the organs are different in a number of ways, but if we focus on the heart, I don't see any way that there can be a heart transplant. That organs without oxygen and the organ transplant people talk about warm ischemic time, warm meaning normal body temperature, ischemia meaning lack of circulation. The warm ischemic time for a heart is four to five minutes. Oh. Uh, that's why you have to start resuscitation right away. The operation to get the heart out takes considerable period of time. If I said 30 minutes, I would, that would probably be as fast as they can get the heart out, maybe more like an hour from the time they start the incision and start the procedure until they can get it out because you know, it has to be dissected carefully and all of the blood vessels have to be taken so off in such a way that they can be connected to the recipient. Pretty much the same thing would be for the other unpaired organ, which would be a whole liver. Uh, they do have techniques now where they cool the liver and so you can extend that time out a bit. But for a heart or liver, it's uh, four to five minutes without circulation and it's so damaged that it can't be transplanted. The Kidneys are longer, maybe like 30 minutes, so it's, it's a longer time. The kidneys are a paired organ. Why? Because God made them that way. And so uh, people uh, get involved with transplanting one of their kidneys. And be sure that the audience knows that if I see someone who has re- received an organ... I'm happy for them, but I also know that the donor uh, either had to have his life taken away uh, or the donor is essentially made weaker. Can we live with one kidney? Of course we can live with one kidney. Many people do, but as when I've given presentations, more than one person has come up to me and said that they had disease in one kidney and had that kidney removed, and if they would have given their good kidney with transplantation and uh, earlier they would be without kidneys right then. Sure. So those kind of things, if the decision is made, it's very, very important that, that there be given full and complete information before the decision is made. When you're at the license bureau, you can't do that. Right. It's impossible because you don't have the information. And so uh, I would encourage everybody not to be an organ donor, not to sign up with the License Bureau, and uh, your relatives should have all of the information before a decision is made. And you have to know that you have to be uh, alive to get almost all of the organs. You can get tissues after death. Bones uh, can be taken because they don't require a continuous supply of oxygen. So you have a little longer time to get them and do things to preserve them. 
So for people who are on organ donation lists, as in they need a new liver, they need a new heart, that kind of thing, the information that you've presented is pretty concerning. And so is there somewhere that these people could go to look up more of this information, to read more about it, to be able to weigh their options more carefully? Because essentially being on one of those lists, it sounds like, is requiring someone else's life of them, which is not something that a Christian person would want to do. So where can those people who are on donor waiting lists go for more information? There are two websites. One is Truth About Organ Donation, and the other one is Life Guardian Foundation, www.lifeguardianfoundation, all three words together, .org. And you can get information there. The general public are really kept from getting any of the information that I'm telling you. Right. Uh, and I know all the many ways that that gets interfered with. So programs like your program that gets to uh, people are one of the ways that I can disseminate the information. It's not easy to find because if this information gets out, it interferes with the organ transplant industry. Right. The organ transplant industry uh, is larger than the abortion industry. $34 billion in 2017, which is the last year that we have information, uh, was billed for organ transplantation. And so it, it's a big industry, and it's all dependent on getting healthy organs. Damaged organs are no good. And where do you get healthy organs? You get them from living persons. Uh, you don't get them from cadavers. So the people, I would encourage the people to pray a lot, uh, to understand their, their own life, to understand that death is the absence of life, and we ought not be declaring death when there are uh, such things as beating heart and circulation and respiration, yes, being helped by the ventilator, we ought not be declaring death at those times, and people need to learn it. Like, we are here learning many other things about what goes on in society. Uh, We're learning that now because of the recent elections, because of the COVID-19 virus, and so we're having to pray, we're having to think uh, more about these things, and so I'm grateful uh, to you, Abigail, and your your station for allowing me to be on the program, and to your listeners for uh, listening and paying attention. If they have questions, they can get in touch with you, and then you can get in touch with me, or they can look at our website, Truth About Organ Donation, and like uh, also, LifeGuardianFoundation.org. Wonderful. And we'll link to those when we post this interview on the website so people can click right over to those sites as well. Thanks so much, Dr. Byrne, for joining us today. We really appreciate you coming on and appreciate the advocacy that you're doing inside the U.S. I know you work with specific patients all the time, so thanks for being a resource to people. Thank you very much, Abigail. You've been listening to I Choose Life News and Views. If you have questions about this program or if you'd like to support the fight for life, please call 260-471-1849 or go to ichooselife.org because without the right to life, no other rights matter.